All right, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Happy New Year. It's great uh, to be together. We have people at home, and we still have people visiting family around the country that I know are watching this morning. And then uh, the room is slowly filling up again, which is, which is wonderful. And um, there'll be some information coming out this week about how, as a church, we're going to proceed with um, our in-person services. Many of you know that uh, we no longer have restrictions coming from the state, but we have our own self-imposed restrictions, and we want to share with you just our thoughtful plan. Uh, you'll see that this week, so, so pay attention to that. We wanted everyone at home to know that and here in the building because we're doing our best to gather people together as they want and to keep people as safe as possible. All right, saying that, um, I want to tell you about a few years ago, our family spent one summer driving around a lot, and that summer we thought we need some really good books on tape. And so we got the entire collection of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. And so we listened to all of those books on tape more than once because there was so much in there that we missed. If you've never listened to them and you have a hard time imagining things that have, are connected to spiritual meaning like forgiveness and how freeing that can be or spiritual courage, the books, even though they're kids' books, they capture that. And uh, C.S. Lewis it, it was brilliant and his writing still connects with people today. Well, we started the books where he started in his writing with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and most people start right there. And once you finish that book, you move on to Prince Caspian, and then The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and you move on and on. From the very beginning, the author, Lewis, lets you in on that there is a great big backstory to this new story that you're discovering. And so, although the story is beginning, it is not the start to the whole context that you're reading about. So you quickly get a glimpse, and then it continues on through each book, that the characters involved have a very old history. The conflict that's taking place is ancient. The land is ancient. And there is a great big story behind the story that you're reading. And what that does is it adds tremendous meaning, drama to each story that you're in. Well, five years after writing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and as his sixth book, C.S. Lewis went back and wrote a prequel to the whole thing. And so as a family, we were so excited to go back and listen to the book that gave the context to the entire story. You listen to it, through it all again, you begin to understand the meaning of everything that was taking place because this beautiful story was placed inside a great big context. Now, I tell you that because most of what you read in your Bible is like that. There are lots of beginnings in the Bible, but it is not the start. You could go to Genesis and get a glimpse of some version of the start of things, but even that is not the start because we know in the beginning was God and it goes a bit further back than creation. But most of what we read in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, is a new beginning, but it is not the start of things. So if you think of Jesus for a moment, Jesus often came to, to clarify things or start new things, but he came in the midst of a conflict, a, a conflict that was very ancient a context that had been forged over thousands of years. Now, the reason that's important is because it's easy today to think in our own lives that all that's going on is what we're experiencing today or tomorrow. And one of the things we like to tell you here at Cornerstone, and we like to start our years this way, is to say God has a great big story that he invites us into. But many of us are always living the smaller story living for lesser things, distracted just day to day, and we miss the great big context of the past and the future that is informing our today 
And if you understand that, you'll experience your days with tremendous meaning and drama and purpose. Now, today we start a new series on the book of 1 John, and we're calling it A Faith That Flourishes. We thought it'd be good to spend the start of 2021 talking about themes of life and flourishing. I think everyone's ready for that, right? Growth, multiplication, freedom, health. 1 John's all about it. And John, when he starts off his book, he's, he's trying to place the reader's life in context. So he's trying to place your life right now in context. And so I'm going to read today verses 1 through 4. Now just set yourself within this story. This is what he says. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, that we have looked at with our own hands and have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us and our fellowship with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And we write this to make our joy complete. All right, so I'm going to spend time on these four verses today. And I want to start by just pointing out the big theme of the whole book in the first four verses. And that is that life comes from God. And it always has been. Now, some of you have heard me say that before. And you might be saying, maybe right now at home, it should go without saying, Brian. I've been a Christian for a really long time. It goes without saying that life comes from God. But that's certainly not the case for us. So I'm just talking to those of us that are with Jesus, Christians in the room or at home. How many times in this past year have we loved, trusted, and served something other than God? See, it doesn't go without saying that life comes from God because we are constantly grabbing at other things. We're hoping our job will bring ultimate fulfillment. We're expecting a person to love us perfectly. We hope that fame or power will actually uh, do away with that fear and that need for control. See, the Bible has a big scary name for this. It's called idolatry, but it simply just means that we are putting something in the place of God. Now, one way we know that we've done this is you can look back. You can look back on your past year right now, and you can look at those times where you were completely undone by something, devastated, lost, terrified. Now, there are certainly scary things in the world. This was a scary year. This was a, a, a year of grief. But what happens is when we put our ultimate love, trust, and hope in certain things other than God, the effects are devastating. Idols always let us down. They always leave us crushed. And so if you look back on this past year and you say, you know, I got a little too wound up in that. How many of us got too wound up in the election? We love, trust, and serve. So it doesn't go without saying that life comes from God. And we constantly need reminded of it. And so John is doing that here. Life comes from God. And it always it has always come from God because God is the beginning. Look how it starts. That which was from the beginning. The beginning was God. When we talk about God, we're talking about the beginning of a family, the, the first community, the first friendship. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have always existed, and they have always existed together. God has never for one moment been alone. And so because of that, God has always been the first one to love and to speak and to share and to experience joy. 
I love Dallas Willard's quote when he says, God is the most joyous being in the universe. It's so helpful for us to think God is scary and mean and sad. But God has always existed. He's been the first to submit to another, to serve another. He was the first to flourish. So we're after flourishing, we're after life. He was the first to experience all of those things. He's the first to promise. He's the first to receive. He's the first to rest. He's the first to bless. And he is the first to share life with another. Life comes from God, and it has always come from God because he is there in the beginning. It's a quote from Baxter Kruger. He says, God is Father, Son, and Spirit, existing in a passionate and joyous fellowship. The Trinity is not three highly committed religious types sitting around some room in heaven. The Trinity is a circle of shared life, and the life shared is full, not empty, abounding and rich and beautiful, not lonely, not sad, not boring. Life comes from God. And what John is trying to say in the very beginning of this entire letter is that God is sharing that life with us in two specific ways. In the written word of life and in the word of life that appears as the son, Jesus. So I'm going to get to those in a moment. The written word and the living word of life. That's how God shares life with us. But let me put this letter in a little context now. So we're going to spend the next couple months the book of 1 John. So this is the John that was with Jesus, the disciple John, who wrote the gospel of John, and he also wrote the book of Revelation. So he wrote a lot of what we now know as the New Testament. And John is now in his later years. I call him Grandpa John at this point. And he set up his headquarters in a a, uh, Roman city with Greek culture called Ephesus. And there from Ephesus, he is trying to, in the last years of his life, direct and encourage a young, fragile, struggling church. The church throughout the Roman Empire at this point was uh, facing some some extreme challenges. Number one, the Roman Empire was, was singling them out and persecution was beginning. And so something that we've never experienced, at least in our lives in this country, but people are being killed for their faith thrown in prison, properties being seized, all of these things are, take, are beginning to happen. And so you have many of the New Testament writers focusing on this challenge. Well, this is happening. You also have the first generation of those church leaders beginning to die. They're just either being killed for their faith or they're dying of old age. And John is one of the last ones around. And so there is a transition of leadership that's taking place, which is always a challenge for new churches. But none of those things are the things that has John's attention The primary challenge that John sees that he's writing about is a new philosophy and teaching that is infusing itself into these new churches. And it's something we now know today as Gnosticism. Uh, Gnosticism simply means in Greek knowledge, and that doesn't sound so bad, right? Uh, You could use Gnosticism to describe knowledge or truth or some divine wisdom or the word. But Greek philosophy around Gnosticism came with a lot of um, application. So the Gnostics believed that there was a divine wisdom, a divine knowledge that was divorced from the physical world. It was divorced from tangible things. And so an example of this is a Gnostic might say, hey, what we're doing right now is wonderful and beautiful. We're worshiping, we're reading scripture, we're praying. But a Gnostic would say, when you go to work tomorrow, it's a waste of time which is a message against what the scriptures say about our work. You were made to work. God uses your work to love the world. 
So the Gnostics come and they begin to say, matter, physical things is bad, and spiritual, heavenly things is good. And what they're doing is they're separating two things that throughout Jewish life and Jewish history, those two things have been brought together. God cares about all of those things. After all, God created a physical world, a garden with people that had bodies and he walked and talked with them. Later on, he would have them create a physical temple that God would dwell in with real people in a real place, a real nation with the people of Israel. We're promised that someday this world will not be destroyed. We're not going away to heaven. God will renew this earth and all that have passed will be resurrected with new bodies. We will not be floating around. And so this Gnostic idea that the spiritual is good and the physical is bad is not a message from the scriptures. In fact, people struggle with this all the time. As easy as it's been this last year to detach from a broken world, hasn't Jesus continually called you back into its brokenness to shape it and to love people? Isn't that one of the messages of the scriptures? Don't run, don't hide, move into it. Shape the darkness. Now, the real problem with the Gnostics, besides all of these things, can you imagine, like, they're just sitting around waiting for, for, for Jesus to come back. They're not working. They're not taking care of their families. I mean, they just look like a bunch of weirdos. And John is saying, this is a serious problem. But the primary conclusion that they come to that was very costly, and so um, this is why it's referred to as a heresy, is they could not reconcile the fact that Jesus was both God and man. Because physical is bad and spiritual is good. So Jesus was either just a man, which means his death and his resurrection, no matter how noble it might have been, was worthless. There is no new life. There is no ultimate forgiveness. Or if he was just, a, um, if he was just God, then he wasn't a man and he can't empathize with us. He can't enter into our suffering. We can't relate to him. So the conclusions and the outcomes of all these conclusions from Gnosticism were very, very great. And John is really concerned about that. So take what we just read and put it into that context. The word of life that you have seen and touched and heard. The word of life, Jesus, is actually referred to as eternal life. So God is wanting to go out of his way through the words of John to say God is eager to share life with us in tangible ways. All right, so let's go through the two. The first is through the word of life shared to us as the scriptures. And so let me just say this as we start. I want to challenge you as you start your year to spend time in God's word every day. I know that it can be hard to understand. At times, the scriptures can, can feel very, very dry. But as the authors of the psalm said, it is more precious than silver. It is a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. Proverbs chapter 3 says, the words of God are life, and they are shared through you through the scriptures. Spend time in God's word and see if he doesn't speak to you. I think it's a great challenge to start the year saying, I'm going to build this into my life. If you tried it before and it hasn't worked, get creative. Listen to scriptures on tape. Find a devotional book that helps create a quiet place in your house or use your drive to work to sit and listen to God's word. It is the first way that he shares life with us. 
The scriptures, even going back to the Hebrew Bible, are many different things. It's poetry, it's full of prayers, it's history, it's narrative about where the world came from. But most of all, the scriptures are a great big arrow pointing to the ultimate word of life, Jesus. And so the Bible's really special. I mean, you can make a case that the Bible is the most historically accurate ancient book that we have today. The Bible is really unique. It was written by, over a number of years, people were going through different things, poor people, rich people, kings, powerless people. You get diverse perspective. It's really unique all of those ways. But the true value of the scriptures is that it's God's way of speaking to us. Now, this should go without saying, but we often forget this too. I feel disconnected from God. We simply get to go to a book that is meant to be a love letter to us. It's him revealing himself. It's him sharing with us. In John chapter 5, so the same John that we're reading about in 1 John, he records these words of Jesus. Jesus said this, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. What Jesus is saying here is the real value of the scriptures is it is a way to connect to Jesus, to enjoy him, to listen to him, to have God involve himself in your day. And God wants to do this because life comes from God and God is generous and he wants to share all of these things with us. And so practically speaking, one of the ways that we follow Jesus on a day-to-day basis is we read the scriptures and we obey them. Even if you struggle with its meaning, you obey them. Now, I've said um, from this stage before that it's quite possible to obey the scriptures and not love God. There are a lot of religious people that do that, although you can make an argument that they're not obeying the scriptures perfectly. They're usually bitter, mean, judgmental people. But I think it's quite possible that you could obey most of the scriptures and not love God, love Jesus. But Jesus made it really clear. You cannot love him, you cannot love me, he said, without obeying me. So the word of life has been shared with us. And when we think of the scriptures, an old mentor used to say this to me every time we talked about the scriptures. He'd always ask me, Brian, how are you submitting to the scriptures? Which meant, what part of your life is not in alignment with what God has revealed in the scriptures? And the work that God has for you, the growth, the life, the flourishing, the path to flourishing that God has for you right now is moving in obedience in that way. Wise people, people who want to express love to Jesus are constantly asking themselves, how does my life line up with what the scriptures say? And they don't just read the scriptures to study them, they read them to be with Jesus. Pope Francis in a letter celebrating the scriptures and encouraging everyone, I like, it wasn't just Christians, he was encouraging everyone to read the scriptures to discover Jesus said this, we do not blindly seek God or wait for him to speak to us first. For God has already spoken and there is nothing further that we need to know which has not been revealed to us. Let us receive the sublime treasure of the revealed word. And you know, one of the things I love about our church and past years is we've really grown in our understanding of the Holy Spirit. You know what the Holy Spirit's constantly helping us do? Experience Jesus. And so he will use the living word of the scriptures to help us experience Jesus. He will speak through the scriptures. The scriptures 
It's God's way of sharing life with us. It's God reaching down from heaven to share heaven with us. But then that leads to the greatest expression of the living word, and that is the Son, Jesus. Now, I'm going to spend some time talking about how he's special in the sense that he shares God with us. But I do want to make a point about the relationship that Jesus has with the Scriptures. And I want to show you a video, just a short little clip teaching. This is from the Alpha series. Some of you know about Alpha. It's something we did in the spring with a number of people. Dan Lance and I are going to be leading an abbreviated version of Alpha with just the men um, starting in about a month or so. You'll hear more information about it. But I want you just to listen from some other people as they describe the relationship between Jesus and helping us understand the scriptures and how the scriptures point to Jesus. So John, you can play that. With the Bible, there are many different writers, but one architect, one inspiration behind it all, God himself. That doesn't mean that there are no difficulties. The Apostle Peter, talking about some of Paul's letters, says there are some things in them that I find really hard to understand. Of course, there are many difficulties in the Bible, moral and historical difficulties and apparent contradictions. And if you've ever tried to read the Old Testament, you know that there are some shocking things that happened. And you might think, well, how can that be inspired by God? It's a bit like suffering and the love of God. At the heart of Christianity is the love of God. But then you look at the world and you see this massive amount of suffering and you think, how can you hold together the love of God and suffering in the world? It's not easy. And similarly, how can you hold together the inspiration of Scripture and the difficult stuff that we come across in the Bible? Some of these contradictions can be overcome by understanding the type of literature that you're reading and the context that it was written in. And Jesus is the key to interpreting what we read. Jesus is love. He's the supreme revelation of God. If we want to know what God is like, he is like Jesus. And what I've found is that the more you trust that the Bible is inspired by God, the more you understand. The primary way in which God communicates with us is through the Bible. It's his revelation. Sometimes people say, well, if there's a God, why doesn't he show himself? Why doesn't he reveal himself? The answer is, he has. First of all, God has revealed himself through creation. The psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. It's like when you go out on a mountain and you look out at the beauty of creation, the magnificence, the stunning scenes that you see. You say, wow, there's got to be a God. Or you look out at the sky at night and you see all the stars and you say, someone must have created all this. The very fact that we're here, the fact that there is something rather than nothing points to a creator. The fine-tuning of the universe, surely only God could have done that. The fact that we're created with this longing for something more, a longing for God. So yes, God has revealed himself in creation, but supremely, God has revealed himself in a person, in Jesus. But how do we know about Jesus? The main way we know is through the Bible. The New Testament is obviously about Jesus. But the Old Testament also, once you begin to look at it through the lens of Jesus, you see that too is all about a person, the person of Jesus. 
those videos are as good as anything I've seen or read in years. And so we're going to continue to share the Alpha stuff with you. But there's a few things in there. Hope you caught it. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible it's difficult to understand. Well, who's the one that helps us understand it? It's Jesus, right? Not only does Jesus help us understand and interpret, and the Holy Spirit's along the way helping as well understand that. It's like a light shining on another light. But Jesus actually validates the scripture. So this is an, an argument that I used on Christmas Eve just about the, the, it's a similar argument around the reality of God. Rather than trying to make a point of that God exists, let's just give people encounters with God and change the question, answer the question. But when it comes to scripture, a lot of times people say, how can I believe it? And we live in a world today where we trust so few things. If you're one of my friends, so speaking of one of those things you get overly caught up in, this is me, confession, if you're one of my friends, you will hear me constantly ripping on the media. In my opinion, I think it's mostly lies and manipulation. I think they're working really hard to pit us against each other. I think they're spinning facts. Um, and so it becomes, for me, at times really disheartening because who can you trust? People will share election data with you. People will share COVID data with you. And right away, I ask the question, who's it coming from? Who's the source? I think a lot of us are this way nowadays. It's not so much that we're even judging the content. We're judging the, 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 the person giving the content. It's the messenger matters as much as the message in a world where we don't trust things anymore. So when you have encounters with Jesus and his truth opens up your life and leads to flourishing, that becomes a reason and a validation for, trust more, for trusting and obeying more of the scripture, especially the parts that are hard for us. The truth is it's a whole lot easier to accept Jesus and his friendship and his love than it is to accept some of his teaching about what it means to follow him. But what he does is he comes along and he validates those things for us. But then you, another part that you heard in that video is that Jesus is supremely God sharing life with us because God is sharing himself with us. See, God never meant for us to live apart from him. He always wanted life to be shared with him. Today, the Holy Spirit is in this room. He walked in with many of you. He's around us. He's sharing life with us on a daily basis. He's making rooms, room in our heart for Jesus. He's the invisible spirit of Jesus that's with us to, to share life with us. But from the very beginning, God wished to share life with us, and that's why Jesus came. And Jesus made a point of this. John 14, anyone who has seen the Father has seen me. John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. It really is true that God has revealed himself in Jesus. He shared the word of life with us. It really is true that he shared eternal life with us in Jesus. So the reason he's this incredible gift is because it's not just truth being shared with us. It's the life of God being shared with us. And that's why if you go back to using the scriptures, if you simply use the scriptures to say, I did my duty, or to study, or to know, or to be able to debate someone, you're missing the entire point. It's to hear him, to commune with him, to be with him. Now, Jesus is not just the word of life, but he is a unique kind of word of life. He is, in the scripture we're told here, he is eternal life. Look at verse 2. I've been thinking about this for two weeks. 
We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, all right? A lot of times we think eternal life comes with God, comes from God, which is true. But look what it says. We've declared this eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Jesus and eternal life in this passage are one and the same. Remember the words of Peter? His confession, he says, Jesus, where could we go? You have the words of eternal life. He was starting to get there, but not all the way there. Jesus helped us. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is what Jesus is saying. It is impossible to flourish apart from a vibrant relationship with me. He is not content with some faith from the past. You know what's been really harmful in American Christianity is this idea that we get saved and then we're done. That's never been what's offered. What's offered is eternal life now and to come. See, what John is saying here is he's saying it's not just an ancient truth that's been shared with you and it continues to be shared with you. John is saying the future has been brought into the present. That eternal life has actually appeared now. Now, this can be hard to understand. I know people right now, you're grieving the loss of a loved one. People in your life have died. And you're well aware that we are not into that age to come. But you read over and over again the words of Jesus. And what he says is he is planting the seeds of the kingdom of heaven today. There is eternal life in the world today. There is a dead world all around us. But there is eternal life here today. The future is present It has burst into the present. And that is the context of our daily lives. Life comes from God. How does he share it? He shares it with the written word. He shares it with the living word. And we are meant to connect to those things. Now, I do want to make a transition as I begin to close to the fact that you become, in a sense, a conduit for the word of life. And this is just a very basic message that you hear in this church and many churches, but your life absolutely matters to God. Your life matters in the things that God is trying to do in this world. You have a purpose. He wants to use you. He has gifted you. But it says in verse three, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship was with the father and his son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. John is saying, it's not just enough that I've experienced the word of life. It's not enough that I've experienced eternal life. I want to share that with other people. N.T. Wright says this about this passage in 1 John. He says, there was a common life, a deep sharing of inner reality between God and Jesus and the Spirit, enough to take your breath away and the thought of such a human being and indeed such a God. But it doesn't stop there. It gets even more breathtaking The deep sharing of inner reality, this fellowship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit has been extended. And it extends to all of those who came to know, love, and trust Jesus while he was alive. So people like John, while he was was with us, so to speak, on display as God's public unveiling of the coming life. And now this sharing, this fellowship is open to others too, to others who didn't have the chance to meet Jesus during this period of public life. What they're saying is God continues to share life with people today. Well, how does he do that? Well, he still does it through his word. He does it through these encounters with Jesus, but he does it through the body of Jesus. I know it's really popular today for Christians, especially where we live, to kind of keep your faith quiet. And I understand some of that. 
There's been a lot of people that have been beat up by people using the same name. We do weird things. We're weird sometimes. The truth is, who isn't, right? Not any different. But that's sad also. Because the word of life is meant to be shared through you and by you and by the way we care for one another and we live in community and the way we raise our families and the way we work and the way we handle um, our friendships and the way we treat money. The word of life is meant to be revealed through your life. You have something beautiful to offer. It's an incredible gift that God has reached down and he shared the the word of life with us in the scriptures. And it's beautiful that God entered our world and pulled heaven into our world through Jesus. But right now, he's using people just like you and me to share that with more, more people in greater ways. Let me make this point another way. A few months ago, I was with a group of pastors And the presenter there shared with us something called the Harvard University Human Flourishing Program or Project, okay? So there's a new program at Harvard that studies human flourishing. And, you know, the way they define flourishing is kind of how we would. There's enough, you're healthy, connected, joyful, multiplying life, okay? So It's a study of life. It's a program dedicated to identifying things that lead to life for people and then promoting those things throughout the world. So it's a beautiful program. They identified six areas necessary for a human to flourish. And so this is what they they say. This is their findings. Happiness and life satisfaction is one. Physical and mental health. Meaning and purpose. Character and virtue. Close social relationships. And lastly, financial and material stability. Not necessarily wealth, but stability, okay? So those are the measures of flourishing. They went further, and they said there are certain pathways that lead to flourishing wherever you go in the world. Listen to the pathways. Family, work, education, and religious community. So Harvard said this. You can see the first chart behind me. John can put it up there. It's kind of hard to see. This comes from their website, but you see family, work, education, and religious community. All four of those resource the other six ways of flourishing. They are all pathways. And so what they found is a person who wants to be happy and satisfied, you don't get happy and satisfied by just trying to be happy and and, and being satisfied. You build happiness in your life by having meaningful work, training in your education, close personal relationships with your family, being a part of a spiritual community. So it's very insightful. You pursue the things on the left and they lead to the results on the right. Okay. But here's what was most astounding that the Harvard professors identified and said. Of those four things on the left, there is only one that resources the other ones. In other words, there's only one of the pathways that feeds the other three pathways along with being pathways to these six things. John, you can put it up. Of course, you're probably guessing it because it's a pastor sharing with you on a Sunday. And religious community, the best, you know, it's not just about gatherings. It's about the life of God shared with us that we share with others. We share with one another. You have something tremendous to offer at your school, at your work, in your family. 
To say that those things don't matter and all that matters is the religious things, that would be a Gnostic faith. I'm so glad that as a church, we're committed to helping kids grow in their education. I'm glad we're committed to healthy families. I'm glad that we promote a theology of work, that work is not just some necessary evil in the world, but it's a gift. You were made for it. God loves the world through your work. You have something beautiful to offer people. You are meant to help people flourish. And how does flourishing happen? Well, life comes from God. How does God share life? Through the written word of God, the living word of God, Jesus, and then the body of Jesus, which is you. The Holy Spirit takes ordinary people and turns them into these little sources of life. And what's special about a church is you put a whole bunch of those people together, you can do amazing things. So it's a simple message today as we start the year. Life comes from God. Get as much life from him as you can and share it with others. So as we close, I just want to challenge you. Worship team, you guys could come out. This is what I want to challenge you to do as we start the year and we end the message today. I want you to spend some time this week thinking about perhaps writing down what would it look like for you to pursue more flourishing in your life? I don't think that's a selfish thing to do because God's as committed to your flourishing as you could ever be. But knowing how God promotes flourishing, creates flourishing, keep that in mind. But what would it look like for you to pursue flourishing in your own life? Your own flourishing. Your marriage is flourishing. Your family's flourishing. You're, you're flourishing within your group of friends, flourishing within this church Flourishing within your community, flourishing at your office, flourishing in our world. What does it look like for you to be a person that pursues flourishing? Because I think this is what John is trying to say. Because life has been shared, we now live not just at the context of the past, but we live with the present or the future being present and that flourishing of heaven we want to bring into the world today. I think it's absolutely I think it's absolutely fine. Fine's not the word. It's absolutely suitable for a Christian to want more from God. Does that mean that solve all our problems, answer the prayers the way we want them to, that we'll be free from suffering? Absolutely not. But he provides a type of flourishing that life grows even in the midst of death. There is no grave that he does not beat. There is always resurrection. And so it is absolutely suitable for us to, as we start this year to say, God, I want more of you. I want more flourishing in my life. Show me how to pursue that. And what you would be doing as you pursue it the way that he builds it is you would simply be joining him in what he's doing in your life and other people's life. It's not selfish. It's what he's doing. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for a new year, even if it's just symbolic. New start. New hopes. The end of certain things. But we know, Lord, that it's just more of life. But what we're aware of today 
is that you are doing something very, very old and you're doing something very, very new and you're bringing about the type of flourishing that lasts in our lives. And so I bless my friends with an appetite for more of life, more beauty, more truth, more love, more goodness. I bless our church with a strong sense of vision of who they are, that they might be people who know they have something beautiful to offer the world around them. Give them wisdom wisdom, and how to do that in an effective way. Give them patience and love so that they, the heart of Jesus might come through. But Father, may they see the tremendous calling you placed on all of their lives. But today, as we start the year, Lord, we pursue flourishing and we want to turn to you the word of life for more. May the scriptures mean more to us this year. May communion with Jesus mean more to us this year. May fellowship with the Spirit mean more to us this year. May being a part of a community where we experience the life of Jesus among one another mean more to us this year. We ask for more. And we thank you that you're as committed to this as we are. In fact, you're more committed. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.